0: All right, if you would be turning to Second Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. We're almost finished with our uh, sermon series on First and Second Peter. We'll conclude next week. Uh, Wes Calton will be bringing the message from verses 11 through 18. Uh, and so um, as you're turning there, I just want to remind you of a, of a few things uh, that I think are important to remember how this letter in particular, and as you heard from Robbie last week and me the week before, focused on the, the, the imminent threat of false teachers Right? It was folks who were coming in uh, who were offering some other gospel, something based on their senses and sensuality. And one of the things that Peter's been doing that I hope we haven't missed and we're going to hear more, a little bit more about this this morning is how he pits those who are true Christians who are seeking the gospel, who are um, uh, elect exiles, who are pilgrims in this world for Christ, against those who are false teachers there's really one distinction outside of Christ, and it has to do with what, their, uh, what the engine of their motivation is. For the Christian, the engine is their mind, that they would be growing in how they think about and, and, and knowing why they do what they do, right? It's critical that we be a mindful people and not just be reacting according to some other thing. Because the way that Peter describes the false teachers and those who fall away is they operate according to a different engine, which is their desires. The things that uh, are sensual, the things that are operating below uh, their known level, right? They're just reacting to things. Um, and, And we have this in our culture, right? Finish this sentence. If it feels good, is that true, by the way? All kind of stuff that feels good that you ought not do for a number of reasons. And some things feel good on the front end, but feel terrible on the back end as far as either consequence. Like, again, and I've talked to you about this before, 50 wings. God, these just seem good on the front end. I'll end it there. Uh, you know, it just, it's it's... it's Right, I mean, and that's a silly example, but there's many more that are just like it. And this is especially true for um, our students. Uh, Many of them are away at the youth retreat. And think about all the stuff that you come up with as a teenager that you just thought, man, this is, you don't even, not even think about, is it a good idea? It's just presented to you and you do it. In fact, we ate lunch with my son the other day and he said, listen, now that I'm old enough, I'm going to start telling you all some of the stuff I did. I was like, well... Maybe, maybe we'll just leave it in the past. How about that? Uh, and he's also assuming we weren't smarter than we were. And so uh, there's a whole lot of stuff we knew we didn't prosecute. And so, uh, but, but that's an important distinction for us as Christians because what does the world say about Christians in terms of the mind? Lazy. Lazy. That's actually generous. That's assuming we, it's even a thing at all. They actually argue that we are thoughtless and unthinking, period. Um, and so, so the world is actually accusing us of something that Scripture calls for us to not be, right? Uh, Peter is calling for us to be a mindful, well-thought, deeply discipled and cultivated people. For what purpose? So that the world would say, look at those nice people. What's the purpose? To glorify God, but also to do what? To enjoy Him and to do what? Draw people to Him. That they would say, hey, here's a community of people that are able to love one another in a way that is deeply thought and, and deeply biblical and deeply meaningful, right? How many mindless things do you know of that you would describe as deeply meaningful? And when you're in trouble... Do you call PJ or Squee, go pound a hundred beers with? Or do you call somebody that you know that actually has something of substance to say and can help you? Someone who's thoughtful and meaningful. So may we be that people. And that's the distinction that Peter's giving. Too often, what I hear from us as Christians is, I'm not much of a thinker. I just want to be a doer. Well, how do you know what it is you're doing if you hadn't thought about it? You ain't got to be a Calvin. You don't have to memorize the institutes, but what you do need to know is the Bible. And you have every means at your disposal to do that. And may we be a people who take up the means of grace week in and week out to become the most mindful people that anybody knows. If we get accused of that, the most mindful and loving, by the way, let's put that on there as well. The most mindful and loving people we know, then we will have done what the Lord has called us to do. Amen? And if you notice in 1 Peter how he said all those things that we're supposed to do in terms of our neighbors, in terms of the government, in terms of uh, our jobs, all of that was so that those people would recognize who God is and potentially be drawn to him. This is truly for the life of the world. So as we step into this this text, keep that in mind, but I want to ask you a question. Uh, What motivates you to share your story with others or any story for that matter? What's the motivating principle, usually? Well, it, it usually is something that has been meaningful to you, something that's had an impact on you, right? Something that has affected you in some, some way, shape, or form, something that you've lived out and learned and know. Um, uh, the things that motivate us to share our story is that it will actually be um, either funny or encouraging or edifying to another person, or uh, it will cause them to say, wow, that's crazy, Um, But what ought to motivate us most to share our story with others is what God has done for us. That we would be a people of remembrance. That we would be able to articulate, just as the psalmist said in Psalm 40, that because of what God has done, we have no choice but to be so filled with his spirit to share that with others. For those of you who I know, and I'm talking to the majority of the room, who are introverts, I know that freaks you out a little bit because... Sometimes the only rubric we have for sharing our story is, is what I think is one of the worst caricatures of Christians, is we're just blurting stuff out to people who don't want to hear it. No, it is, it is to be done in the context of relationship, which is great for you introverts, and you guys are incredible at this, and you have the ability to have all of heaven break out in a party when one person comes. And if that was the sum total of your life, that would be more than enough wouldn't it? And so may we be a people who are involved in the story, mindful of the story, lovingly receiving the story and sharing it with others. I love that Josh got hung up when he was trying to describe heaven. That actually was the most honest confessions ever been uttered from this stage by any of us because words fail. It does. It hangs up in our throat. It ought to. If you would turn to the text, and let's see what Peter does in terms of calling us to remember the power of God's word. This is 2 Peter 3, 1 through 7, if you would give your attention to the reading of God's word. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder Now, Peter, again, is reminding them uh, of why it is that he's writing to them. He says, and notice what he calls them. And I think this is so important. He doesn't say, you bunch of worms, you bunch of fools, you bunch of failures. What does he say? Beloved. What a term of endearment, he says. uh, And notice, he's not attacking them at all in this letter. He's seeking to build them up, to edify them, the flock, who are being encountered by false teachers. They've already risen within their midst. And it is his heart for them. This is why he's sharing these things with them. And he's saying, I have written to you to stir up or fan into flame or to ignite a sincere mind. What does that mean? That means that this, this, is, not, this is not just knowledge for the sake of knowledge. This is not just something to make you a better person. This is not just something that uh, is... is is supposed to give you your best life now or in the future, this, this is sincere. This is actually transforming you from the inside out. You don't control it. It controls you. You are indwelt by the Spirit. You are indwelt by the Son. You are indwelt by the Father. And so he's saying, I want, to, I want to, in your sincere mind, by way of reminder, and he first says, remember the predictions of the prophets. Now, what's he mean there? What he means is remember that what the prophets predicted was the advents or comings of Christ. That, that what they were predicting was the redemption of God's people. Anything else just pales in comparison. Anything else is less than that. So why get tangled up in it? Why worry about it? And then he says, also remember the commandment that the Lord gave the Savior through the apostles. Now, he's referring here to something that he heard himself in Mark 12. If you remember the story, the lawyer, always a lawyer it seems like. Uh, Sorry, Alicia, I did look at you when I said that. (laughs) I I don't know why that happened. Uh, (laughs) Uh, and the lawyer challenges him, and he thinks he catches him on the horns of some dilemma. He says, teacher, it's the greatest commandment. You see what he did there? So he's trying to get Jesus to boil it down to the most easy thing for anybody to do, which if he does that, think about all that gets thrown out. If he picks one commandment over another, Think about how then the people who care about those other things are going to attack him. So it looks like the horns of the dilemma, but Jesus does what he always does, which is so masterful and beautiful. He says, uh, well, and he reads the Shema, if you know from Deuteronomy 6, he says, love the Lord your God, who is one. Worship the Lord your God, who is one. And then he goes on to say, and the second, which is really not a second at all, it's just a further extension of it, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And what's beautiful about that is if you know anything about the law, he just summed it up. It's the two tables of the law. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. As a lawyer begins to wrestle with that, and he, he says something even more beautiful, which I just find so fascinating. It's just how loving Jesus is. He tells him, he says, you are actually closer than the, to the kingdom than you realize. The whole while you were trying to run from it, it was drawing near to you. And so what we are to remember And what is supposed to motivate us is that Christ came the first time, and we're going to talk about this a good bit in Advent, for the life of the world, to redeem God's people. And he's coming again for judgment, which Peter gets into further here, but that's also to to deliver God's people out of the brokenness and sinfulness that is so, uh, so pervasive in this world. And it'll be a new heavens and a new earth, but he is coming again, guaranteed. And also remember that your whole purpose is to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbors yourself. And you're to think and, and to be mindful to those ends. Anything else just pales in comparison. You can do it, but it won't get you what you need. It won't make you who you could be. And so he says, remember those things, knowing that first of all, The the sign of the end times is not the thing that actually should cause you to think, well, maybe we're beginning to lose this war, but actually it signals that the powers of darkness are heating up and getting more and more nervous as the day draws nigh to the return of Christ. And so they begin to really push to try to destroy as much as they can before the bridegroom arrives. Because when he arrives, it's over for them. And they know that. So the scoffers will heat up and they'll scoff. <laughs> I think it's funny that it's gonna, the scoffers will do exactly what they do, which is scoff, which is amazing because that, that is also an alternative. Ought to be Christians ought to do exactly what Christians are designed to do, which is to exalt Christ. And so they're going to scoff and they're going to do it willfully ignorant of the truth. Did you notice that? They will purposefully deny the truth, deny every evidence of the truth so that they can follow their own passions and desires before the day dawns. And notice what they say. Where is Jesus? Where is he? Look at the world. Look at all the suffering. Look at all that's going wrong. Why didn't he come back? If he loves you guys so much, why does he leave you here? You know, the world spins madly on, as it always has, it's just process and progress. It's interesting how many philosophers throughout the centuries have said those exact words in various ways. And notice that they, as they deny these things, they are most deliberately overlooking the power of God's word. It says, He spoke this world into being, and then He spoke judgment into being in the flood, and then He spoke it back into recreation and he will speak it to be purged by fire. So they are ultimately denying the the power of God's word to transform things. And so, in essence, they are rebelling against the most base thing of all. The most foundational truth of all is that God can do anything he wants to do at any time. But it's good that the story doesn't end there. And we'll read in just a moment what is the actual heart of God in this taking the time to return. But Peter is making it clear judgment will come. And what's important is notice who he's talking to. Is he talking to the false teachers? No. He's talking to the elect exiles. Why is it important for them to understand that judgment will come? Two reasons. One, Their suffering has a limit, and that is good news. Two, their neighbors who don't believe have a limited time. And it's critical that we be at work while the day is what it is. It is critical that we be sharing the truth of the gospel so that they would not hear judgment, but instead hear, come my beloved child, in you I am well pleased he's saying this not so that we could celebrate their final defeat, but so that we could, with some measure of unction and passion, pray for, engage in the lives of those who are lost. That we would take seriously the moment we have been granted, the call that we have been called into. Listen to what Dick Lucas and Christopher Green say about this passage. They say, The effort the false teachers make to ensure that they deliberately forget should be surpassed by the effort Christians make to remember. Knowing that they must understand the redemptive work of Christ in his advents. Did you hear that? The effort that the the false teachers go to to make sure that they are ignorant of what is going on should be surpassed by our effort to remember. For those of you who think, well, effort sounds like legalism. No, it's actually not. The only effort that's legalistic is if you are trying to earn God's love, which has freely been given to you. The effort to understand God's love because you recognize the magnitude of it, the fact that it is limitless, is the kind of effort that is necessary in our obedience as disciples. So let me ask you, do you ever struggle or doubt Christ's return? Do you ever look at the world and just think, my God, my God, if you pay any attention to the news worldwide or the suffering that people have gone through historically, it is hard not to wonder, why do you tarry, O oh Lord, are you there? And God would say, that's actually a good question. Because the psalmist, that song that we sang, How Long, If you notice, all that comes from Scripture. The psalmists were constantly crying out, how long, O Lord? In the book of Revelation, it says that the martyrs cry out from underneath the altar, how long, O Lord? Even they, which is interesting, who have gone on before us, long to see the story brought to conclusion. Because of the suffering they see us continuing to go through. Even creation, according to Romans 8, stands on tiptoe, neck outstretched, looking for the deliverance of the sons and daughters of God. Everything is pointing in this direction. And yet, at times, we turn our gaze to the things of the earth, don't we? At times, we feel in ourselves our own imminency, our own brokenness, our own fallenness, and the, just the brokenness of the world. And we think, How long, O Lord? And God says, that's a great question because by you asking, you've come to the right place. And I'm not going to answer your question with a date. I'm gonna answer your question with a purpose. And then how does this affect your view of history and the current events and the conditions of the world? Right, does your doubt sometimes make you just not even, how many of you just wanted to push away from the midterms? And just not even deal with it at all and hear all of the rhetoric. And it's not over, by the way. And you're just tired of hearing all this stuff. And you just wish a Savior would come. Be careful. Be mindful because there is a person or persons who will offer you peace and security at all costs. It's known as the Antichrist. And it's important that we recognize that no man other than Christ can offer us safety and security of any substance, meaning eternal. It's critical that we not fall prey to thinking that there is a system, if we could just have the right system of education, if we could just have the right system of governance, if we could just have the right system of whatever it may be, then all this could be better. Now, did I just say that things operating according to God's law wouldn't be better? No, it would be. It would be fantastic. As long as the principalities and powers of darkness continue to think there's any chance left before the full reign of Christ is inaugurated, or not inaugurated, but completed, they will rage. In vain, but they will rage. And so it's important for us to remember and then does the power of God's word in history grant you assurance that this story will end as he said it would? It's interesting reading uh, for the men's book club, we're reading Waiting for Snow in Havana, Carlos Erie. And his rec- <coughs> recounting of how the revolution breaks out in Cuba is just heartbreaking and harrowing. And there's one scene early on in the book where there's a, a maid who tells him uh, when his parents aren't listening, she says, someday you're going to sweep while I swim. You're going to pick up after me and do as I bid. Know the day is coming. And it came. And even though they fled that revolution, they found themselves completely broken and impoverished in Miami. The whole thing flipped. The revolution still had its impact upon them in their lives. And so do we have assurance that God is who he says he is and even if circumstances change for us and we found ourselves in some sort of difficult circumstance, would we continue to believe the gospel as the church in China does, as the church in Cuba has done, as the church in the Sudan is doing, as the church in Nigeria is trying to do? Would we? Or remove our safety and security And it turns out we really weren't thinking about this. We were just willfully ignorant. Let's turn back to the text and see that Peter is going to say, but God's judgment that is sure to come tarries for a reason and a purpose. It is his redemptive patience. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The false teachers have overlooked this one fact, which is the power of the word of God. And he says, now you, you don't overlook this one fact, that God is patient and kind and long-suffering toward his people. Remember, he's essentially quoting Exodus um, 34, six through um, I'm sorry, uh, five through seven, or six and seven more specifically. That, that that confession of who God is, who is steadfast in love, who is long-suffering and patient and kind and merciful. Praise God, amen. That He's not willing, and this is a struggle for us, because is He speaking universally that none should perish? Or is he speaking specifically about His own? What's well, not that that absolutely no one will perish because they already have. As much as I hate to say it, and along with Spurgeon, I would say we should not speak of hell much without tears somewhere in our heart and our eyes. Hell is and will be populated. But what he is saying is that he is unwilling to let any of his own go, his children, those who he has deemed, his sons and daughters. And you may say, well, how do you get picked? By faith alone, in Christ alone, through God's grace alone. Same way everybody else gets picked. By his eternal, redemptive, and kind will. By choosing to not serve yourself and recognize with great humility that you are not the center of the universe, that confession alone is critical and important and hard for many of us, right? And so he says, but don't overlook this, this fact that one day is as a thousand years with the Lord. And essentially what he's doing is he's quoting Psalm 90. Now, I want to read Psalm 90 to you. It's a prayer of Moses, because what's important about Psalm 90 is it's going to help us have a little bit of understanding of what ap- what's the application of this truth. So if you have a Bible, flip to Psalm 90. <clears throat> it's a psalm that has been very important to me over the last couple of years, and it's been very important during this season in which Sam Larson has passed away and my mother has passed away. And something I've really been meditating and thinking on. This is a prayer of Moses, the man of God Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom Establish the work of our hands. Now the psalmist, what he's saying is, is if what we were left with was God's wrath, if that's all we had, then as you saw, as you heard in the middle portion of that psalm, how dark an existence would we have. How difficult and terrible. But the psalmist says, but, but you, Lord, are steadfast in love. Teach us to number our days. Establish the work of our hands so that, so that our lives would have meaning, so that the things that we do between the now and the not yet would have purpose. Invite us into the work into which you are doing in this world. So what we learn from this psalm is that while there is a reality on one side of suffering and toil and trouble and brokenness, There is also the enlightening reality of the Holy Spirit at work in us through the person and work of Christ establishing the work of our hands so that what we do could have eternal value. So that what we do in this life actually matters. That we as Christians can't say, my ticket is punched, I'm just waiting for the end. That we can't say that that all of my sins covered allow me to do whatever I want. No, that's the language of a non-Christian. You and I as Christians are called specifically to use the gifts that we have in the power of the Holy Spirit for the advancement of the mission of God so that he would be glorified to the ends of the earth. That is inarguable. We do all kind of stuff to try to get out from under that, but we can't. And so when Peter quotes that, he is invoking the fullness of Psalm 90 and reminding his hearers of a word that they would have known, a psalm they would have been familiar with. We too should be familiar with it as well. And notice what he says, that his patience toward you, his patience toward us is so that we would be redeemed. So his patience, his redemptive heart is far, far, far greater than his judgment and his wrath. But his judgment and wrath will come. We We cannot reduce the tension. It's there. But what we can do is while the day is what it is between the now and the not yet, what we can do is the work that he has given into our hands for the life of the world. And notice what he says, he says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, which again, he's quoting Matthew 24, where Jesus talks about coming like a thief in the night that no one knows the day or the hour, but you should be prepared. What's preparation? Well, actually, Wes is going to get into that a lot more next week, so I won't steal his thunder. But we need to be a people who are prepared, who are active in doing good works. We don't want to be a people who are true of that bumper sticker that you may have seen that says, hey, Look busy, Jesus is coming. And so he's telling us that he's coming like a thief in the night and that the heavens will pass away with a roar. Anytime you see that, that wind language, that's evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit and the coming of the presence of the Lord. And when, it, when he says that the heavens are going to pass away with a roar and that the heavenly bodies will melt and be burned, they will actually be destroyed, and here's why. Why do you need stars and, and other constellations if it's never again going to be night in the new heavens and new earth? What good are heavenly bodies if the Son of God himself, according to Revelation 21, will actually be that which casts light upon all things? So he's saying that that part of the creative order will have served its purpose. Night will be no more. Now, we would be wrong if we think that there's going to be an equal set of destruction in the earthly. No, it's not that the earth is going to be destroyed. What does it say? It'll actually be revealed for what it really is. And the language here is purification language. That means that all of the things that are on the earth and that are Uh, built by human hands and the things that we've done will at long last be revealed as to whether or not they were for his glory or for ours. You would do well to read Paul's uh, version of this in 1 Corinthians 3 when he says that on the firm foundation you should build The firm foundation is Christ, and you should build works that are long-lasting. They should be the equivalent of gold and silver and all of the substances that, interestingly, you will find in the new temple, in the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 21. He says, but the haywood and the stubble, that's all the the temporal temporal things that we have built for our own glory, that stuff's going to burn up by fire. Paul says the same thing Peter says here. He says, but you will be saved from the fire. But all that stuff you put your time and effort and energy into, it's going to be gone. I got a glimpse of this one time. There was a lady in our church who was a nurse at Delta. And her husband, uh, they had a little boy, and he was profoundly dyslexic. And her husband left her for another woman who would provide him with the drugs that he craved so much. And so she essentially had no contact with him for months. We pursued him. He wouldn't have any of it. And so one day she came home, and he was lying unconscious on the the front porch. Um, Essentially, he had overdosed, and several of his organs had ruptured, and the girl that he had turned his life over to, instead of taking him to the hospital, dumped him out there to die. She rushed him to the hospital, but he could not be saved. And so one of the ways in which we sought to serve her was to come in and clean up because he had co- just collected stuff. There were, there were old like washing machines in the yard. It was just it was trash everywhere. And so she asked us if we'd come clean things up. And there was a moment that Rob Yarber, who's a good friend of mine, uh, and I just had this profound experience. We'd just read in Ecclesiastes, I think it was chapter five, where it says that all the things you amass in this life, someday aliens, not from outer space, other people groups are going to take all your stuff and do with it whatever they want. That great library I'm building in my house, I'm not sure how I'm going to protect it once I'm gone. I don't want to be buried with it. That'd be weird. And so, so we open the garage and it's a two, two bays and the entire floor is covered with trophies. And it was a startling moment for us because he had essentially spent his life earning all of these, and if you guys remember, uh, um, there was a whole season in our culture where having a stereo system that could blow out your eardrums and the eardrums of anybody within a mile radius, that somehow was a good thing, and you got trophies for it. Uh, and that's what he did. He competed car stereo stuff. as a 45-year-old man. And all these trophies, all that time represented and spent, we took and threw in the trash. We broke them all. Not out of anger. It's just what happens to a trophy when you throw it head up and the weight's on the bottom. It just breaks. So he had nothing to show for it. His son, nothing to show for it. His wife, who stood by him, nothing to show for it. See, that's, that's obvious to us if I were to come to you and say, hey, the message of this sermon is don't waste your life on car stereo trophies. You guys would be like, I can do that. I got that in spades. In fact, I'm so far ahead on that, I can probably win a couple just to mess around. No, <laughs> not the message of this sermon at all. But what you do need to do is examine how you are in fact wasting your life on things that don't matter at all. And here's the hard part that we just don't like to hear. You are going to have to choose. You can't do everything. You can't be an expert at all things, and you can't keep up with everything, and you can't spend your time on certain things as much as you probably have in the past and, and grow anything beyond where you currently are. And so it's important that we be mindful, that we think about the works of our life, not for our sake, but for the future generation that will hopefully come to know the Lord after we're gone. And also for the Lord himself, that he would be glorified. Now, some of you may have just heard, now, I think Cameron just said, unless you're walking around reading your Bible all the time, you know, passing out tracts that you're doing, you ain't doing nothing. No, no, no. Any of you who know me know that a job well done, the, the, probably the thing that you spend the majority of your life on at current, you can leverage for the glory of God. And you don't have to give out the first track. For those of you who are parents, you can leverage that which seems like an exercise, in abject futility for the glory of God because he has deemed it so. For those of you who are students and in school, you can leverage what you're doing. Doing it well to the glory of the Lord doesn't mean that you necessarily have to scream at people and tell them why they're wrong and not show them what is right. What it means is that we begin to care about our lives. Is there someone around you that's lonely? Is there someone around you that's hurting Is there someone around you who is being belittled or beleaguered for some reason? You would be doing eternal work to step across and say, you matter, I'm here. Is there some family member of yours that is cut off because of the mistakes they've made? We had a long conversation yesterday with my son about reconciliation, including one of our family members. And as he was resistant to it, I said, hold on a second. Who of us could sit at this table if we operated according to that guillotine? He told me to shut up, I think. (laughs) No, he didn't. I saw the wheel turning. And so we want to be a people that are thoughtful and mindful of how we live because of the ending. And how it will end for those who don't know Jesus. That should move us. It is not right that, that our eyes are dry, yet Christ weeps. It's important that we recognize that the things that we do in this life can translate into the new heavens, new earth. I told Dom, who cooks, does the pizza truck at Truck and Tap on Thursday nights, he cooked me a steak for my birthday, just being nice. It was one of the best steaks I've ever eaten. I don't eat New York strip, I'm snobby, Okay. And so it was amazing, and I I couldn't help but think, Dom, I I hope that grill of yours makes it in the new heavens, new earth. I really do, because Isaiah 25 tells us that on this mountain where God is going to repeal death for all nations and pull back the veil, that we will eat the finest of meats and drink the richest of wines. That is a, a corporeal reality. That is an embodied thing. But in order for Dom to be the cook, What's he got to do? He's got to know Jesus. So I can't just eat his steak and say thank you. I did, in fact, give him a thank you note and included Isaiah 25, and I hope it actually shook the tree for him a bit to think, wait a minute, this may be worth thinking about. When he heard that Susan and I are about to celebrate 19 years, he actually paused and said, I didn't think that was possible anymore. He was upset that we're going to miss the next three weeks. It's cool. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, therefore, God does wait. If men ask why there is no interposition of wrath to overthrow the ungodly, the answer is because this is part of God's reign of love. He waits because he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Yet there will be some limit even to his patience. So what are some ways in which God has been patient toward you and those you love? This is a great question for you to consider this Lord's Day Sabbath and to discuss with some other people. Because I don't think we always know each other's story, story, do we? We don't always know how we recognize God's great patience toward each other. What an amazing thing it would be for your kids to hear that you are, in fact, in need of the same grace that you've been trying to impart to them. Wouldn't it be a great thing for your spouse to know of something that evidences God's patience and love and care that you had not shared before, some part of your story that you just haven't shared? And it's also good to be able to see it in the lives of other people so that we can love them well. And then even another thing to think about in the positive is what works from your life do you look forward to having revealed in the final judgment? That's a stirring question. And it's not that, too often I think we think of the magnificent and the grandiose. No, sometimes it is a long obedience in the same direction. It's loving someone for years when they didn't necessarily love you back. It was interesting, before I went on the retreat, I had an opportunity to have lunch with my son. And um, it was probably the most important conversation we've ever had. It was also the, the, the most peer-level conversation that we've ever had. And it was also the most serious conversation that we've ever had, and it, was, and it was all positive. It was beautiful, my son admitting to his weakness and his inability to save anybody else, much less himself. I'm so thankful for that, and and, and if you don't know much of our story, I can't tell it all now, but what you need to know is that conversation seemed utterly impossible five years ago, completely off the table. And he even brought that up. He even talked about what a joy it was to be able, and he even said, I came to you because I knew that you would be the person to talk to about these things, his struggles with his, his own frailty, my son doesn't do well with feeling frail. I don't either, by the way. So, what are you also doing to cultivate works of eternal value? How are you being intentional about thinking about these things, these works of eternal value? Does it even cross your mind? And let me help you out here. It is really just you becoming more Christ like. It is really you displaying the fruit of the Spirit in its totality or the attributes of God. You don't have to measure everything jot and tittle. It really is the sweep. And if you have any questions about that or if the devil begins to kind of whisper low or turn your head toward things negative, come talk to us. Because no single thing can declare you anything above what Christ can declare. And there's nobody in this room that doesn't need Jesus. So 2 Peter 3, 1 through 10 teaches us a couple of things that we are called to remember. One, we are to remember the power of God's word which ensures Christ's return. Remember your theology. Remember your theology. Two, God's redemptive patience allows us time to join in his eternal saving work. Do you understand that when he returns, we don't get to to participate in the work the same way. This is a unique season in which we get to suffer as Christ has suffered. Remember what Peter said in 1 Peter. We get to commune with Christ in such a unique way, and what you need to understand is that's going to affect how we experience what's coming. See, we tend to be wicked, wicked socialists when it comes to the new heavens new earth. We tend to think that it's all going to be, it's going to be flat. Everybody's wearing the same white robe and the same gold slippers. and Nobody has eyebrows and I don't know why, but we just don't. And, and everything's the same. It's all flat. You don't know your Bible. Now, being in the new heavens, new earth is still better than anything there is. But how we live now is going to affect the depth at which we get to experience it. And I don't know what all that means. But what I do know is we need to be thinking about it, and we need to live into it. What a joy it is to be able to baptize someone who's professed faith this morning in light of this, as it reminds us of the first advent of Christ, and it also points to so beautifully the coming again of Christ, that last advent when all things will be made new. And what a beautiful picture it is that when a believer is baptized, that what they are confessing is, I want to join in this work. What a joy it is to be able to see the fruit of people being faithful and living it in such a way that someone was drawn to it and said, I want to investigate that. I want to live in that way. I want that to be the narrative of my life. This morning, uh, we will baptize Becca Lapsevic. Did I get that right? Okay, just making sure. And she, about a year ago or so, professed uh, more fully faith in Christ, and she has been hungry, and it's been a joy to be around her, how she's thinking about things and how she's investigating things and how new it all is to her and how hungry she is to be able to live it out. And so in obedience to that, she wants to be baptized this morning. Now, for those of you who are with us, there's uh, several different modes of baptism. I'm not gonna, I don't have time to convince you of all of them, but the oldest is the one that you see us do with infants, which is the, the sprinkling, which is what's done for any sort of instrument that is set apart for God's glory. For a believer, uh, it is even more important to have uh, pouring be symbolic of how the Holy Spirit is indwelling those who come to Christ. What a beautiful thing that the Scripture gives us many motifs to use to be able to learn the great boundaries of the gospel. Obviously, we're not going to immerse her in this little tub because to fold her up and get all the parts wet would be cruel and unusual punishment to her. But immersion also is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection. All three give us this wonderful uh, picture and just how nuanced and beautiful redemption is. But we'll witness to pouring this morning. So, Becca, if you would come up. I know, I got the nice bucket. And I need to ask you some questions before we baptize you. And so, what you're going to hear is they're just the membership questions. And this is her confessing that she wants to be part of this community and the kingdom of God. And so, uh, Becca, I'm going to ask you these questions, and then I have one question for you, the congregation. Do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure, and without hope, save except in his sovereign mercy? Yes. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners, and do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he has offered you in the gospel? Yes. Do you now resolve and promise and humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes a follower of Christ? Do you promise to support the church and its worship and work to the best of your ability? Do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace? To you, the congregation, if you're a member of Christ Community Church this morning, you will answer with the raising of your right hand to this question. In receiving Becca Lapsevich as a member of Christ Community Church and and our Christ Community family, do you commit to help her grow in Trinitarian worship and missional love of her neighbors through the means of grace and relational encouragement and accountability? Do you? I think that counts. (laughs) (laughs) If you would, take your shoes off and probably your sweater so it doesn't get wet. And this towel is for you if you would step in. And I just want to remind us of what baptism is. It is a sign and seal of the reality of what Christ has done, not only for Becca, but for all of us, that he has died, taking on the full weight of our sin, past, present, and future, as well as receiving the fullness of the wrath of God so that we would never again stand before him, fearful of him as judge, but only of him as father. And it also signifies that she is raised to newness of life in the resurrection of Christ, that she can now walk as becomes a believer. She can use the gifts that the Lord has entrusted to her and that she is able to glorify God in all that she does. For those of you who've been baptized, be reminded of that this morning and seek to improve upon that. And when we are done, if you would, make sure to welcome Becca as a new sister in Christ here at Christ Community Church. So I will take the font, and Becca, if you would tip your head back just a little bit and step forward, yeah, the logistics of this. (laughs) Here we go. I want to baptize you, my sister in Christ, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I want to you got a pretty good ovation there. I don't know. I must, must like you. Thank you. <laughs> I want to pray for her and pray for us. And then Josh and the band are going to come forward, and we'll do one more song, and then you'll receive the benediction. Let's pray. Father, I give you thanks for Becca and just the joy that she's been to be around. I, I've appreciated her questions. I've, ac- I've appreciated her um, longing to know. I've appreciated her willing to be mindful. willingness to be mindful. Uh, as she is investigating, I give you thanks just for her life and the blessing that she has been in the, in the short time that she's been here at Christ Community Church. She's currently serving, and we give you thanks for that. May we be a blessing back to her and help her to grow and mature as she comes to understand what it means to be in union with Christ. We pray for this in Christ's name. Amen.